0: great to have all you guys here this morning. I had a um, nightmare this week that uh, all the manliest men in our church somehow were wearing pink. And, uh, and then this morning when I got up for the sunrise service, which is um, my two and a half year old crawling in bed in the middle of the night. And uh, she knows she's not supposed to be there. So she kind of pats me and says, Daddy, I love you. You know, it's, oh, you know. So I was up at sunrise and, um, And uh, here are all the pink shirts. Um, So it's kind of cool. And it's just great to have you here for this Easter. My name's Ken, and we are starting a series in the book of 1 Peter. And so if you want to open to 1 Peter, that's kind of where we're going to jump off. And we wanted to do this on Easter Sunday because it's kind of just a cool little opening. And then we'll just see where 1 Peter takes us from now all the way through until uh, summer sometime what I'm learning as we do book studies at Antioch is I keep picking like my favorite books. And so 10 years from now, we might be like going through Rev, uh, Revelation and Leviticus, which are kind of for me further down the road. But um, if you like Leviticus, uh, 10 years, we'll, we'll work our way down there. But I love First Peter. First Peter is kind of like a manual on Christian living and just like a short little letter. And here's this guy that's just a giant within the Christian world, um, kind of Jesus's chief apostle, uh, that he's having to do all these kind of leadership things, and the guy was full of energy and would always kind of put his foot in his mouth, and he gets two letters in the New Testament to kind of share with us his heart. And what's cool about this, the date of First Peter is probably about AD 64, um, during the reign of Nero, you know, right before he started persecuting some Christians. So that means that it's about uh, 30 to 35 years after Jesus died. And it's kind of cool because 30 to 35 years prior to the writing of this letter was when Peter was, was kind of doing all the, the things that he was getting chastised for and, and rebuked for, and he was just impetuous. And what we get 35 years later in the writing of this book is a much more seasoned and wise and mature Peter. And it's kind of cool to read. And in the Greek language, the word meek actually means like power or strength, under control. And the picture is of of like a stallion. And so you've got a horse that's got all that power, but it's harnessed and it's under control. And so the word meek means strength under control. And when I read first Peter, that's always the image that comes to my mind is here's this guy that's got all this strength, all this energy, all this fire, but it's under control and we get the seasoned version. And so if we uh, begin reading, I've got it on the screen for you here. We're just going to take Uh, In chapter 1, verses 1 through 2. And so we're just going to go ahead and read the intro. And this is what it says. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and sprinkling by his blood. Now, the, uh, the interesting thing here is I really think this is just an opening greeting in Peter's letter. Uh, whether you're texting, maybe not if you're texting, but when you're emailing or writing a letter, you've always got a little greeting that you kind of throw out there. And it's just the kind of hey, hello, how you doing? And then you get into what's called the body of the letter. Does that make sense? You remember all the way back to like seventh grade English? And what Peter's doing here is, this is the the greeting, this is kind of introducing himself and saying, hi, how you doing, and connecting with people, and it's just a generic opening statement, and it's not theologically packed in the sense that he's trying to make these arguments about theology or doctrine, um, although you could kind of take it and parse it out that way. He's just taking what all these people kind of know. They're Christians, they're people that know God, that are scattered all throughout the Mediterranean. And he's saying, you people that know God, that God has chosen, that he is redeeming and saving by the work of his spirit, that are, that are called unto obedience with Christ, and, and he is purifying and cleansing you with his blood. To you people, I'm writing, and grace and peace to you. And so what's, what's amazing is in that opening, what he basically is communicating is just the gospel. That plain. He's taking and saying, you people that are living in this gospel, this good news, grace and peace to you. Just that simple. And the reason we took the, the saying for this, this day, it's not about the bunny is because the gospel really is simple. And it's not about the bunny or any of the trappings that we put on religious stuff. It's about God saving people. It's about God taking the initiative, reaching out, marking you specifically, and then working through His Holy Spirit and through the the sacrifice that Jesus made when He died and rose again. That's the whole Easter part. You, He is saving you and He's taking the initiative And it's that simple. That's the gospel. And what we do is we tend to work ourselves into that picture. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ, that good news, is awkward. And it's a stumbling block. And Paul even said it's a stumbling block. The idea of of someone dying and rising again is a stumbling block to kind of the mindset of a lot of people out there. And to the Jewish people of the day, it was a stumbling block because he came in weakness and died on a cross. And it says in the Old Testament, it says, anyone who's hung on a tree is cursed. And so the Jewish mindset was, how can we worship or exalt this Jesus? It just doesn't make sense to us. He's not coming in power. He's coming in weakness. And, and this idea of Jesus is such a stumbling block, and it's awkward. And so we, we try and play games with it. We try and add things to it and we try and make it palatable and, and we just try and fill it out and it's like, you know, the, the person, you ever seen those shows on cable where they, they take people and they give them the makeovers, you know, and they got the guy that's the stylist guy and the makeup person and the jewelry person and the hair person and these people walk in and, you know, I was watching the show one time and the person walked in and it was the first time those other people looked scared, like, <laughs> uh-oh, <coughs> um, there's not much we can do with this, you know, and it's awkward. And I think sometimes we look at the gospel and we're like, that's just not exciting enough. It's too, it's too plain and, and um, we've got to do something with that. And so we try and, and stretch it and pull it and tweak it and spice it and add all these other things. But it's, it's not what it's about. It's not about the bunny. It's about a God who saves. It's about a God who saves. And back in the Old Testament when Gideon, was being called to go and rescue his people. And God pared down the number of his forces. God was saying, it's not about numbers and it's not about you. I'm going to save my people. And when the walls of Jericho came down and people were marching around looking really silly, I mean, that's not the way um, you would see it in Braveheart, you know? A bunch of people marching around the walls and then blowing some trumpets, you know? Like, it's just not manly at all. Um at all and that's what these guys are doing and all of a sudden jericho the walls fall down and and god's saying i'm gonna save you i'm gonna do it and god has always been the one that saves and when he rose jesus up from the dead he finally proclaimed that i am a god who saves and it's not you and it's not human power and the biggest thing we try to do is make it about ourselves we try and sneak us into the gospel and the gospel story this whole idea of redemption this whole idea of reaching in and saving it's everywhere you watch almost any movie or hear any story and you can see the elements of that and so this new thing oprah's big giveaway you know it's it's people getting something then they have to turn around and go and give it to people in need that's that's the gospel story but we work ourselves into it and we get so focused on us being the hero and playing the part of the one that saves that we begin to lose sight of, that all these things are are little glimpses of, reflections of the real gospel story, and that's that God saves, and we're the ones in need. Okay, so I would call this us sneaking ourselves into the gospel. It's been called the gospel of works. I would call it the I did it gospel, or the I'm a good person gospel. And I've never met anybody that said, yeah, I'm a bad person. Um, we all, you know, try and sneak in that we're a good person. And you know what? I think we are, you know, compared to Hitler. Um, we're doing pretty good, okay? Um, the only problem is good doesn't do it. Good isn't 100%, is it? Good is better than, but it's not sufficient. It's It's on this side of Hitler... But it's on this side of Christ and perfection. And so, yes, we're good. But, but what does that really get us? It's like a fire escape ladder if you picture it. So if you have a fire escape ladder and it's, it's up there and you just can't reach it. There's no way you can reach it. It doesn't matter how high you can jump, right? And so, I mean, picture someday um, a guy getting to heaven because the, the people in heaven are, are where God lowered the ladder and God saved but there's a guy in heaven, and he's like going over here and saying to this guy, did you see how high I could jump? It was it was pretty high. And then he's over here to this guy, and he's like, I, I swear I nicked the bottom of the ladder. It's like this, I mean, I've got it. It's like me in seventh grade with the bottom of the net. In basketball, like, you know, I could touch the bottom of the net. Um, that's all I can still touch. <laughs> um, it's like Jordan, man, I got hops. And it's ridiculous. People are going to be looking at that guy in heaven and saying, it doesn't matter that you could jump high. And it doesn't matter how good you were. God still saved you. You didn't do it. And you should have been focused on him instead of yourself. You see, the best reason, the best motivation for worshiping God is God. God is the best motivation for worshiping God because he's big. Now, Paul understood this and Paul talked about the idea of goodness and, and works and things that make him look really special in a religious sense. And he said, you know, you, you package all those things up and they're worthless to me. It's like rubbish. It's like trash. They're worthless because it doesn't get me anywhere. It doesn't matter how much it adds up to. It doesn't get me anywhere. I want Christ, okay? I mean, Paul, in today's terms, had like, like 50 Christian bracelets going up his arm, okay? And he had like 1,000 Christian worship CDs, which means he only had about 20 songs total because they all have like the same songs. Um, And there's a Jeremy Camp poster on the wall and there's like a bobblehead doll of Billy Graham right there by the bed. And and Paul would have had a, a Rick Warren autographed Bible, okay? He had it all, all of it. And, and what Paul is saying is, that it doesn't matter how high I can jump. God is the one that saves me. And that's all I need. That's all I want. That's the good news. And so in Galatians, he says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And when we focus on ourselves, we become bigger. And what happens is pride. And I love this, uh, this line from a a poem that John Dunn, the Christian poet from a long time ago, wrote to somebody in a letter. And he says this, For for though to us it seem, and be light and thin, yet in those faithful scales where God throws in men's works, where God throws in men's works, vanity weighs as much as sin. And so this whole gospel of I'm a good person really is all about um, taking the good in me and trying to magnify it and say, I'm worshiping myself. I'm pretty special. Um, I'm kind of a big deal. And it makes God less and less necessary. And we don't magnify, but we diminish the glory and the worth and the value of a God that we're supposed to be here to worship. I, uh, I was going to show you a clip, but I couldn't get it to work. But, um, if you remember the Jimmy episode from Seinfeld. And Jimmy was the guy that referred to himself in the third person. Jimmy can play good basketball. Jimmy likes Elaine. You know, um, you remember the Jimmy episode? And Jimmy had these special shoes that he would wear around that would help him learn how to jump really high. Um and so George went into business with Jimmy and they were gonna market these shoes, but then Jimmy got hurt because he slipped on water. on uh, Jimmy's mad at Kramer, you know. Um and, uh, and so George has to go into the Foot Locker store, and all the people there are in their like, you know, Foot Locker striped uniforms, zebra things, and they're like spread around George, and George is trying to show them how great the shoes are by saying, how, look how high I can jump, because I've been wearing these shoes for a day or two, because Jimmy was injured and he couldn't jump. So there's George with the Foot Locker people, and George laces up the shoes and tries to jump like three times. Doesn't even get off the ground, really. And then the footlocker people just walk away. It's, it's typical George moment, right? But so that, pi- that picture of George Costanza trying to jump um, is what we're doing when we are doing this I'm a good person gospel. Look at how high I can jump. And it's completely, completely irrelevant. Um, and we look silly when we do that. So when we do that, this gospel of works, we get a wrong view of ourselves. We get ourselves wrong. We magnify ourselves. The second thing when we have this kind of good works gospels, we get Jesus wrong. So we get ourselves wrong and we get Jesus wrong. And, and what we naturally do sometimes is we make connections that seem reasonable, but they're wrong connections. They're, they're a bad connection. We extrapolate out things, but we don't get to a, a good conclusion. And let me try and illustrate this uh, Justin and Trish moved up here to, uh, Justin's the worship pastor, and, and Trish moved up about a month ago with their kids. And uh, their oldest daughter, Maddie, is about three and a half. And so they've been, she's been watching this cartoon movie, you know, those Christian ones or whatever, if you've ever seen them. So it's like a cartoon Bible story video for kids of the biblical character of Esther, okay? And she's, she loves it, and so she's been watching it over and over and over and Justin and Trish started trying to help her understand that Esther is a real person. It's not just a character in this cartoon. Um, Esther, that Esther, is actually a real person, okay? So they've been trying to train her that way. So about two weeks ago, Trish takes her two kids, and she meets my wife and our kids at McDonald's where the playland is and all this other stuff. And my daughter's names are Mary Joy, Esther, and Sarah. And so they go and they play and they're at uh, McDonald's and all kids love that. And so Trisha's driving back with her kids and Maddie had an amazing time. And she's asking Maddie, well, why was it so amazing? And Maddie answers and she says, I met Esther, queen of the Jews. (laughs) And and Trisha's just cracking up, you know, Esther, queen of the Jews. She's like, you know, Maddie, yeah, Esther is a real person, but... Not that real person, you know, my, you know, my little four-year-old Esther, you know, it's such a funny picture, especially if you knew her. And so sometimes we make connections, but they're the wrong connection. And unfortunately, when the stakes are really high, um, here's a bad connection that, that we make. We look at Christian leaders and we see the heaviness and the gravity that a lot of times they have when we sometimes look a lot more like the Pharisees than Jesus. And we see the religiosity and we see a lot of the judgment and a lot of the pride. And we extrapolate out from that and say, if these people are representing Jesus, then Jesus must be like that. It's logical, it's reasonable, but it's a wrong connection. And we walk away with a wrong view of Jesus when there's a gospel of works out there where all we're doing is trying to scrutinize and analyze people according to how high they can jump in their different levels of perfection. And so this is kind of a video clip of the view that people walk away with when they think of Jesus on that paradigm.
1: Do you think he can fly? Here he comes. Well, all right. Now it's time for me to tell you all what you've done wrong since I last saw you. And don't try and hide because I'm Jesus. I will find you. Let's start with you, Peter. You lied to your mother the other day. Andrew, you said a naughty word when you hit your finger with the hammer. James, you laughed at him when he hit his finger. Moving right along, John, you drank too much wine the other night. Not way too much, just enough to make me angry. Matthew, we fell asleep in church, didn't we? Yes, we did. And Thomas, you were slow dancing a little too close with that girlfriend of yours. Let's see, and you... I forgot your name, so you're off the hook for now. Um, Hmm... Philip, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind that big rock the other day. Thaddeus, I hate to say I saw you stick up your middle finger at someone who cut you off when you were riding your camel. Benjamin, you aren't wearing your WWJD bracelet. Jacob, I don't mind you saying my name, but not after you stub your toe. Frank, you know what you did. I just can't repeat it, because I'm Jesus. Alright, all you sinners, come with me. It's time to pay the piper. Then it was only one cigarette. I heard that. Look at all these sinners. Alright, listen up. Listen to me. I'm Jesus. Listen to what I have to say. I have done many wonderful things. I have healed many people of diseases. I have performed many miracles so that I can tell you this. You're all evil. There is no hope. That's it. Thank
0: you. We get Jesus wrong with this whole works thing. And, and there's probably nothing that really grates me more than this. Um, you know, I don't know if it's unique to American Christianity or where it came from. I, you know, obviously it was around in Jesus' day. But when we when we mix into religion, people get squirrely and they just... Something takes over inside of us and we have to start making distinctions. You're dirty and that must mean that I'm clean, um, which means... You're not as good as I am, which means I must be better. And we we kind of start playing this game where everything gets sliced up and pride just starts to run amok with us and religion becomes this oppressive, heavy system that does nobody any good. You know, and I don't know if you've experienced that, but in in America you can find it pretty much anywhere and and it just drives me absolutely crazy. Religion is like the rider that, that just... Rides the horse into the ground. So somebody comes in heavy, and they come in tired, and they come in in need of love and help and hope, because they're willing to lay down anything in their life if 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 they would just be able to see God and be able to throw themselves on Him. Them. And and they come in like that, and instead of giving them hope, we just get on their backs and we just pulverize them and ride them into the ground. And then they really realize how small they are and insignificant and that they're evil and whatever, and we're better, something like that and it's 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 just absolutely horrible what happens when religion abuses people and when you turn back to ezekiel in ezekiel chapter thirty four you'll you'll read about I've got it somewhere here. Ezekiel chapter 34 is a famous passage about um, the shepherd and the sheep. And God is just calling to account the religious leaders of his day. And he's saying, I put you there to lead. I put you there to help. And you didn't do it. And so I'm going to have to step in and take over. And listen to some of the words he uses. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or search for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. You've abused the people that you were put there to help. You're a shepherd. You exist for them. They don't exist for you. And you've gotten it all wrong. And, and, and God just burns with that. And we struggle with it because no one's perfect. None of us can jump all the way up. And so we have to somehow always call ourselves back and say, what's at the essence of this whole thing? At the essence of this is that God saves. We're all on the same playing field. And when I've been able to experience that and know the joy that comes from that, I'm in a position to be able to turn and help somebody else. I get the blessing of being a part of what God's going to do in someone else's life. There's a phrase, blessed to be a blessing. And when we really understand that, we understand what Jesus meant when he said, they will know you are my disciples by your love, by your love. And so when I want someone to watch my kids, I don't want someone that's going to come in and just be brutal and harsh with them. I don't want that when someone's watching my kids. I want Julie Andrews to come um, walking up over the hill, singing The Hills Are Alive with The Sound of Music. That's what I want with someone watching my kids and God is looking down and he's saying, there's all these people I care about. And you that know me, bear my name and go and represent me well. Don't represent me poorly. And if you love each each other well, and if you help those that are needy and those that are sick and those that need to be bound up, if you do those things, they'll know that you belong to me. They'll know it. They'll sense it. They'll feel it. It'll be rich. It'll be good. And it will help them. And if we do this whole good person thing, we get it wrong. In 1 Peter, again, remember just how clearly he says this. You've been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. The whole Trinity gets in on this. The good news that is the gospel is that the whole Trinity gets in on this game of reaching down and helping you and saving you and working on your behalf. You see, God is the good news. God is the gospel. It's not us. I get asked sometimes um by pastors, I've I've been asked several times what what our strategy is um for evangelism. And uh and I say to them, Well, we don't really have one. And evangelism is taking people that aren't Christians out there and trying to turn them into Christians and bring them in here. Okay? Not necessarily a bad thing, but I'd say, well, we don't have a strategy for that. And I'd say, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, first off, how do we save people? Um, We don't save people. See, God does that, okay? So that's taken care of. Um, And then the part about going out and kind of finding the people, um, you see, we just don't have a strategy for that. Because for us, it's just relational and it's organic and somehow it's just going to happen and I don't know, we just don't have a strategy. Because what I saw when I was in a church in California was that we always sat down and strategized, how do we go make people Christians? And you see, everybody's already heard of Christ in America at some level, okay? And so they don't want to come and hear what we have to say. And so we have to trick them, okay? Um, we have to trick people out there into coming in here to hear about God. And see, they're not going to come if, if we're going to talk about God. So they, we, have to, we have to sell them on a different reason, and so we'll go find a um, Christian comedian or a magician, and then we'll, we'll go tell your neighbors, we got the magician here, um, and then they'll come and, to hear the magician, but then at the end we'll, we'll switch it on them, and it'll, it'll be about God. You see, we'll bait them over here with the magician, and then we'll switch it. It's bait and switch. Um, and that's, that's the strategy for evangelism. And I always used to sit there and I just would scratch my head and I'm like, that really feels sneaky to me. (laughs) And I'd be like on the outside of the circle just thinking, you know, gee, I wouldn't want someone doing that to me. And gee, I just don't see Jesus as having to walk around like trying to like pull it in on the sly with people. Um, Hey, you want to go see a bullfight? And then at the end, you know, um, oh, by the way, So well, here's what happens with the bait and switch. Um, You end up at this event, and here's a guy down the street, and he's trapped. He's caught up in all these nets, because we've trapped him. Um, And there he is, trapped, and and here you are, and this is what you have to say. Um, Hey, my name's Ken. Can we have a relationship? Um, And by the way, Jesus loves you. You see, if we would learn that sometimes we chase people away from God because it's like the patient who's scared of the doctor because the nurses are jerks. Um, That we could just change the image by actually reflecting a little bit more of God's desire to save people that need to be saved, to give them the grace that they need to be healed. And if we reflect that a little bit more, maybe we can just live life and be a community and be authentic and be relational and just invite people, hey, if you want to come along, feel free. And when they come in, maybe then they could just get excited about the family of God and getting excited about the family of God might get them excited about God himself to where they want to be in this midst where the Holy Spirit is working to change people and make them more like Jesus Christ. I mean, maybe that could just happen organically. I don't know. But I just don't feel like we need to be sneaky about it. God's the hero. Um, We don't have to do it ourselves. I think sometimes we worship um, Lois Lane rather than Superman, you know? We worship the thing that is not the hero rather than the hero. And our efforts and our strategies and our sneakiness and our games and our manipulation and whatever else is the human stuff. God is the one who comes in and saves and accomplishes this for us. He's the one who heals people. And if we don't try to always rely on ourselves and we just love and live in the, the light of that relationship with God, maybe, just maybe, we can put the emphasis where it's supposed to be. You see, God has a lot of orphans out there, He does. I think there's a lot of people, even in Bend, Central Oregon, that are they're going around, that, that are looking for God, or uh, God has somehow worked out a relationship with them, and they're, they're just little um, kids in their new relationship with God. And maybe that's you. I don't know, but you don't have a family, you don't have a community, and you're just an orphan out there. And God doesn't want his orphans to end up in communities that are tyrannical. He wants them to end up with Julie Andrews singing songs all day um, and dancing around in clothes made from curtains, okay? Um, and maybe you watched Sound of Music a 100 times when you were a kid, just like I did. And uh, everything in life could come back to the Sound of Music. The gospel is God and the Sound of Music. Let's look at First Peter one more time. Why does this matter? Why does it matter that the gospel is about God saving us and it's not about us and how high we can jump? Why does that matter? Look at the last little concluding remark that Peter gives in his opening. He basically says, God did it. God is doing it. God will do it. It's about God. And then he says this, grace and peace... Be yours in abundance. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. And you're coming in today, and and I don't know what your thing is, but everyone's got a thing. The doctor told you something this week you didn't need to hear. You're afraid of death. The finances aren't matching up. The bank's taking back your house. You just lost your job. You found out that a friend's gossiping about you. I don't know what your thing is. But we're all coming in with a thing. And if we can't look into the future and believe that there is a time when all of this will be healed and be set right and be made good where the ladder will come down and we'll be able to actually get to that place where we're all longing to go, where everything is established and where God is there living in our midst, if there's no hope, then nothing really matters. You're just wallowing and you're on your own and that's all there's ever going to be. And there's nowhere you can look to. No one's going to come in and save the day. There is no hero. There's no one who's big. And you know what? Um, You might as well just despair. But if you try and find hope, if you try and find peace and joy and rest, Hebrews says you don't have to fear death. Um, Paul says you don't have to be anxious. Jesus said you don't have to worry. All of these wonderful promises of the kind of life that you get to live because Jesus rose from the dead, because God saves. If you don't, if you can't grab hold of that, looking into the future, how in the world are we ever going to know peace? Where is the grace going to come from? And that's the good news. That, that's That's the earth-shattering news. That's how big God is, is that... He doesn't just save in an abstract way for theologians. I mean, he speaks to you right after the doctor does. And he talks to you right after the banker. And he's the one that whispers in your ear right after you heard the gossip. God is the one who is going to accomplish what he's setting out to do. Listen to the Psalms. Psalm sixty-eight, twenty. Our God is a God who saves. From the sovereign Lord comes escape from death. And Psalm 55, 16 says this, but I call to God and the Lord saves me. Psalm 40 is this, I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the mud and the mire. Now here's the truth I've realized about God. God is never bigger than when you're lying flat on your back. God never looks bigger to you than when he's reaching down and pulling you out of a pit. And God is the best motivation for worshiping God. And we have a God who saves us. And it is so remarkable that we need to just exist in that awkward tension of letting it be simple. And letting it be something that we're not in control of. And so on Easter Sunday of all the days during the year, um, this is the day that we look at, and remember that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And it's the thing that allows us to celebrate. It's the thing that allows us to look and see this is done and it's established and it's finished and it's good. And God is doing it and he will do it. And I can trust that and I can place my faith in that. And that is something that I can celebrate. It means something to me. There's grace and there's peace for me now. It's for celebration. It's for celebration. And so the tradition of Easter was always that somebody would stand up in the congregation and they would proclaim, Christ is risen. And the rest of the congregation would respond, He is risen indeed. And why would they respond that? Because it matters. Because it matters that it's not just hypothetical, but that God actually lowers the ladder. It actually matters that it not, it's not just about the bunny or just about us being good people. It matters that it's done, it's established, and it's good. And so this morning, we've got to somehow be able to celebrate that. That Jesus isn't what we sometimes think he is. He's masculine, for one. And he loves you. And he's here to heal you. He's here to give you grace. He's here to bind you up. And his resurrection shows you what you're headed for. So, I'm just going to say it. Um, Christ is risen, and I'm going to ask you guys just to respond. Um, Christ is risen. risen All right, we can celebrate this now. Christ is risen. risen Father God, um, you are the good news. And I just pray that we would be able to see you as being big and glorious and marvelous and wonderful. That you're a God who saves. That you've always been a God who saves. And that even though we have nothing to offer and we can't get there on our own, that you come down and it's sufficient. You find us. You grab hold of us. You're not going to lose us. And Father, um, help us go beyond that. Just with your Holy Spirit working in our lives, help us go beyond that. Let us be able to grab hold of and to know the peace that surpasses all understanding. Help us to be able to live in light of what you're doing and what Jesus did 2,000 years ago. Father, we worship you. We love you. And we want to be more like your son. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.